0: elevated you know
1: that feeling when you walk into your home take a deep breath and feel new Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Station with a phenomenal woman that I have long admired. She's bold, collaborative, and an absolute boss. She's Jenny Connor. Jenny is a television writer and producer who's worked alongside Lena Dunham as the co-executive producer and showrunner of Girls for all six of the hit show's seasons. She continued her partnership with Dunham on HBO's Camping while also working with her to create the popular feminist newsletter, Lenny Letter. Just last year, Jenny signed a multi year overall deal with Fox 21 Television Studios, where she'll be creating, overseeing, and producing various series for the studio's platforms. I know I speak for many of us when I say that I am so excited to see what Jenny is going to create next, now that she is helming her very own studio world. In my conversation with Jenny, we discuss imposter syndrome, hippie progressive schools, the ins and outs of running a show and how restaurant experience translates to producing. We also touch on Jenny's early career stints in development and as a Hollywood assistant, and how she forged her path as a TV writer under the mentoring wing of Judd Apatow. For anyone interested in the entertainment industry, this conversation really pulls back the veil and gets into much of the unseen work that goes into each and every production. You're gonna love this one. Enjoy.
0: Do you remember when we met? I can't For the remember. first time, no. I don't either. I like, you just were in my life. I know. And I feel like it was like, it's been, it was like three times before the Laura Brown dinner, yeah, which was the sure. most recent time. And, but I cannot think of one of those locations.
1: Me neither. I just know that I see you at things. And I think we really got into it because we'd, we'd started to follow each other. Yeah, yeah. So there was already- you know sometimes you have this thing where you you become like a digital friend of a yeah. person whose work you know and then you realize they're also a cool person and it's so yes. relieving. And I felt <laughs> that way about you because I was I'm such a fan of your work and your writing and obviously, you know, what you guys did with Girls and how that show came on the scene um and what you've done since. I just was like this woman is Cool as shit, and you are. So thanks for that. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Yes, no, that was one of those Instagram friendships that really transitioned. Yeah, it worked into real life. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely. But yes, I cannot remember. I like. I can remember that it was. It felt like I feel like there was one daytime thing and the rest are nighttime. But I don't know. That's all I got.
1: Yeah, just things. Yeah, but to to go back a bit, you know. Girls, obviously, was such a huge, I would imagine, career moment. Yeah. You know, when, <laughs> Absolutely. when, when, you, when you, you create this show and then it's become this sort of cultural icon. Right. But before you get there, how did creativity, how did all this begin for you? Were you, like, if if I met Jenny at 10, mm-hmm. were you writing stories? Were you I was, about but stuff? I'm
0: not one of those... I was not one of those kids who was just um, sort of head in a book solitary writing like um, Katie Dipple. Do you know Katie? She's mm-hmm. a great comedy writer. And she, I was once um, on a panel with her and she told a story about how she was like a kid detective and wrote sort of a, newspaper about her beat, which was mainly, I think, following her sister around. <laughs> and that to me is sort of what I expect to hear and love to hear from writers. And I'm truly not that. I wrote always and, you know, could write a good letter, something like that. But um, I didn't have that drive for writing. Um, it sort of, it came much later. I thought, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I just wanted jobs, Right. So that paid well. So mm. I worked in development at Tribeca. Um, and, and I mean, first I was an assistant there. And then I left to be like another kind of more executive assistant. And then I came back and Jane Rosenthal graciously welcomed me back to do development. And during that time, I was just sort of a, you know, privileged asshole living in New York, having a really good time. <laughs> Um, and which is where I drew so much of girls from, mm. um, which was funny because Lena is a person who can process things so quickly that she could go on a date the night before and write about it the next day. And I was like, it took me 20 years <laughs> to be able to process my twenties into work, you know? Yeah. Um, but Can I ask yeah. you a
1: question just for people listening who maybe don't have the experience yes, in the industry course. that we yes. do? What does it mean to be an assistant? Okay. At a place like Tribeca, and then what does it mean to be working in development? How how do those or how do those worlds function?
0: Okay, so I think there's a kind of assistant that's a Hollywood assistant that is sort of not the idea of what a secretary used to be. It's someone who does so much personal work, mm. um, a lot of planning, a lot of sort of <clears throat> picking things up from someone's house at midnight. That kind of work. Um, And organizational as well. And I, I at a certain point, quit that job and was a temp. And I was a temp during this time in the 90s where most of my peers who had gone to college were doing internet stuff and something in the internet bubble. So I was like a very high in demand temp. And I had also been a Hollywood assistant, which is like an, an entirely other kind of job. And I remember... You know how the models were always like, I won't get out of bed for less than whatever $10,000 a day or whatever they used to say. I was like, I'm not getting out of bed for less than $21 an hour, which was an incredible amount of money at that point. Yeah. And so I would go and work for, I like, the head of the New York Stock Exchange and, or the vice president. Um, and he was going to Martha's Vineyard that weekend and I gave him like 40 options of travel. And he couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh, Hollywood assistants are very different. We're sort of expected to do um, much more than sort of organize someone's work life. So that sort of, I think, explains what a Hollywood assistant is. Mm -hmm. And it's also answering phones and getting lunch and all of that. And then development is um, sort of... Working to try to develop projects for the place you're working and for the boss you're working for. So when mm-hmm. I worked at Tribeca, which was is De Niro and um, Jane Rosenthal's company, because it was in New York, I was sort of focused on book scouting, which is trying to get books early and acquire mm-hmm. the rights to them and then try to make something creative out of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are something creative, but try to bring it to film or television. So that's sort of what development was um and but I wasn't um particularly good at that job. <laughs> I think I'm much better now since I've become a writer, mm. but at that point, I was a by a landslide, a much better waitress than I was <laughs> um a development person, and I was given a lot of responsibility, which I really. Was fortunate to have, but I'm not going to say, like I'm looking for someone that reminds me of myself at that age when I'm hiring. So,
1: yeah. Hmm. Now, your parents were writers, mm-hmm. still are, are writers. Um, do you think that that sort of influenced? you, when you were in school and then eventually wound up being an assistant, like, did did their writing kind of push you toward the industry?
0: It did. But I will say, if anything, my father especially really tried to talk me out of it. He was Why? like, I don't know. I remember him talking about William Goldman's book and who wrote um, huge, huge movies, very, very successful career. And in his book, he's just, he talks a lot about how poorly he's treated and how poorly writers are treated and I remember my dad saying, if that guy doesn't have a good experience, like what chance do we have? Mm. And I think he was also particularly frustrated in his career at that point. But I think Why, he— Why? What kinds of stuff was he working on? I mean, I don't know. But he he seems to have much less my, um, a much less negative attitude at this point. So mm-hmm. I don't know specifically what that was. But what I would say is that, um, he, you know, I, I think he would have just been happy if I got— I mean, he would be happy if I'm happy, and he's very happy for me now. But I think that when you're in the life of a freelance writer, it doesn't always seem like what you would want your children to do. It doesn't feel very dependable. There's no health insurance, things like that. Right. Although now none of that makes any difference because, like, everyone – no one has a dependable job anywhere anymore. Right. (laughs) So I think that was what it was about. That's
1: so interesting. Yeah, I – I always joke, like I had that real sort of child of immigrant parents mentality. Yeah. And it was like you'll be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer yeah. or a doctor. And I thought I I thought I wanted to go to medical school forever. And then I told my parents I was gonna apply to theater conservatories. My dad's a photographer. My right. mom was like, This is your fault. You turned your hobby into a career and now uh, your daughter thinks she can do it that's too. So funny. You know, it was like this You grew up here, right? Yeah, I grew yeah. up here in LA. And so they had real panic about it too and and i think it is i think the the unpredictability of any kind of freelance career it's hard for people you're always nervous yeah
0: I mean, I have a thing. My husband is like this too. Like, we wake up every day and think today's the day it all goes away.
1: Oh, I have that. Yeah. Oh, by the way,
0: and my they'll first... never make another cent.
1: Yeah, never. Today's, today's, today's it's it. over. Yeah. This is the
0: year that it ends for I me. Know. Well, I'm glad we could spend it together for both of us. Me too. You yeah. know, it's
1: like the, 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 that TV show, The End of the fucking World. Yeah, exactly. I, but you know what made me feel better? I, I remember a few years ago reading this interview with Harrison Ford mm-hmm. and like, you're Harrison Ford. You yeah. made Star Wars. Like, he's one of the biggest movie stars of all time. Yeah. He's friggin' Indiana Jones, you know? And he was saying that every time he starts a new film, he's convinced that that will be the film. That set will be the one where they figure out he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, so if Harrison Ford still Has feels Imposter that way, Syndrome. I'm never going to not feel this way. Right. So what I should do is just feel this way and get over it yeah. and go do my job.
0: Yeah, and realize I really think um, the muse only comes when you're working. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, just do garbagey work, at least writing, mm-hmm. you know, which you have to if you can. I can do nothing if I'm sitting there waiting for the muse. If I'm writing something good, bad, irrelevant, then I get ideas. And so mm-hmm. I do think... I'm not sure how that applies to acting, but I do think that it is powering through the imposter syndrome. Mm. It's interesting to hear you talk about Harrison Ford because someone has written something, or maybe many people have, about it being kind of a uniquely female syndrome, the imposter Mm. syndrome. Um, So I'm not sure. Maybe it's uniquely entertainment (laughs) syndrome. I
1: think it might be uniquely sensitive. Yeah. And you know as actors as storytellers our job is to be sensitive and to create emotional lives for people yeah and so i wonder if perhaps even for you know men in the industry if if just that bent toward the emotional sensitivity to others mm-hmm. even if they're just their characters has something
0: to do with it or men but, don't talk about it as much yeah they or they feel just it don't as admit much it. As we do yeah yeah
1: and I'll also I'm sure different types of men and how they were raised and what their relationship to masculinity is and the list goes on. I, I saw this stat recently that said that women will wait until they are 90% certain they can do a job before they apply for it or ask for the promotion that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And men decide they deserve the promotion or apply for the job when they are 40% certain they can do the job.
0: That sounds right.
1: And I thought about, wow, just what that 50% gap does to us.
0: And how do we get
1: over it? How do, we, how do we throw ourselves into it?
0: But I'm not sure when I hear that, that either of those answers are correct. Mm. I'm not sure that 40 is the right number either. Do you think it's lower? No, I think maybe we should all be 70% sure we can do the job. Right. Or 65. I mean, I... Yeah.
1: And how I do really we get like there? a
0: statistic, so I'm very excited about this idea. But um <laughs> I I think there's there might be somewhere in between for everyone yeah. because I think we've all witnessed the 40% getting us people who aren't ready for jobs, and mm-hmm. the ninety percent probably gets us a lot of overqualified people who get bored easily in their jobs. So maybe right. somewhere in between.
1: That would be great, wouldn't it?
0: I don't know, maybe.
1: What was your first job? ever.
0: Um my first well I babysat a little bit, but Same. I I mm-hmm. um I worked in uh restaurants. So I worked um at this restaurant. Well, I worked a little bit at um an ice cream store that was on 9th in Montana or 10th in Montana. You grew up here? Yeah. I mean uh, sort of my parents moved around a lot, but the biggest chunk was here. So okay. when I was a teenager, I I worked at this place called like, it was called like the Dutch Ice Cream Factory or something. Mm -hmm. And then Montana got built up and then it became, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name. It was like a Santa Fe. It was such a moment. It was like a Santa Fe restaurant in the cast of 30-something used to come in. (laughs) Babalu, that's what it was called. And Mm -hmm. I was a sort of waitress hostess there. And it's honestly, that experience is why I love to hire people with restaurant experience because it's producing it's you know you especially when the job is sort of back and forth but you're managing all these people everyone wants something from you at the exact same time you have to learn to communicate and say you know when someone says get me that coffee who works with you and you say oh yeah hold on i'm just going to deliver these two plates first you have to be able to talk to people about time frames you have to be really comfortable Uh, educating people. You have to be nice to the public, whether you feel like it or not. I just think it's like a really great way to learn how to produce. So, and actually when we started Girls and um, our producer, Gina, she told me that she loves people with restaurant experience. And I was like, oh, well then we're gonna, it's just gonna be perfect. And she did get us the greatest crew ever, so.
1: Did that apply to everyone Every sort of level of the crew, like no, I mean not and- everyone
0: obviously were, mm. had restaurant experience. It was more, it's more about hiring newer people. Mm. I mean, because I don't need you know the electrician who worked at a restaurant if he's been doing it for twenty years. Right, right. Yeah,
1: I get that. So you were here here in LA for the sort of biggest chunk of your childhood, yeah, and then. What about college?
0: College, I went back east, but I also, I went to boarding school, like a hippie progressive board. Every school I ever went to was a hippie progressive school, thus the lack of history education in my life. I don't know seriously anything about anything. Um, For real, like I, like continents I have trouble with. Um, And then.
1: (laughs) What did you get from hippie progressive school?
0: You know human skills, creativity, freedom, other weird friends, being around artists a lot. Yeah. But not so much education.
1: <laughs> but So again, maybe that would be a nice place to to get into the 65.
0: Yes, you exactly, know?
1: exactly. Like maybe 65% education and 35%. Yes. Creativity. That's right. That'd I be would great. love
0: to know more facts.
1: Okay, so so we'll, But also
0: I don't read that much nonfiction, so I'm not learning them that way either. But I like I to surround it. myself with people who know facts. Yeah. Like you. You're building a team. Exactly. Um, and so I went to this, like, hippie progressive boarding school. and Was
1: that also in California? That
0: was in um, outside of Boston.
1: Oh, so you went back east earlier.
0: Yes. And that was 10th through 12th. And then I went to Sarah Lawrence. Um, and so, again, definitely weird art schools with a lot of freedom. And also, I went to Crossroads here, so all of these schools now I would say are um, sort of much closer to a normal school. But at the times I went to them, they were real freak schools, so uh, which I loved. You know, I loved it you can't um, yeah. can't take a class in that. So I don't know. It's it's the sort of freaks and geeks ethos. Yes, right? exactly.
1: And how did you come? Speaking of freaks and geeks, how did you come to work with Judd Apatow? Because you know, now now we've we've looked at school a bit. We know that there was all the Tribeca, yeah. and the assisting, and the developing in between, and then getting to girls. You're working with Judd. You're working with Lena Dunham. How does how does all that happen?
0: Well, actually, John Hamburg, the comedy writer and director, had a lot to do with it because he, when I was in development, I would take a lot of writers out to lunch and Hmm. be like, so what's your day like? Because I knew I wanted to do it. Really? But I didn't know how. And so, and at a certain point, John and I became friends and he just said, you know what, just quit and do something else and become a writer. You're using the same muscle all day. You're using your development muscle in the morning and at night, you're, you know, you're obviously not one of those people who wakes up at 4 a.m. and writes, which I am not. And I mean, I write in the morning, but I'm not like a 4 a.m., Right before work, kind of person, right? And um, and so I did, and that's when I became had my second act as a waitress at a vegan diner on the Lower East Side, run by a model. Um, and then and then that feels like a setting for a show. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it closed in like six months, but so maybe one season, limited. Tragic. Maybe it's just a
1: short film. <laughs> yeah, great.
0: And uh, so. Then I went – then I moved back to L.A. and um, – or I actually moved with my baby daddy at that point to Chicago. He was in business school. And then I would travel back and forth, and I had a writing partner, and we got some jobs writing movies or movie adaptations. Nothing ever got made, but we were in that process. And then Freaks and, how and Geeks. how does that
1: happen? Sorry. Before oh, no, we move sorry. On, like, how, how, do you, how do you start getting jobs – adapting or doing drafts on movies?
0: Well, I had come from being a development person and an assistant. So I knew everyone's name and I had relationships, even if they were just phone relationships. Mm. And so at that point I could call and ask people, you know, do you want to represent us? And we had a script that we wrote called wannabe and we, it hadn't, we hadn't tried to sell it yet it was just a sample and that script got us other work Cool. and so we would go in there would be you know four writing entities partners or single people or whatever vying for the same job to adapt some usually female driven comedy and then um, we would either get it or not get it it's a little bit of a lottery and so and then we were obsessed with Freaks and Geeks we were obsessed with it. And we, how come? I mean, just because it was sort of the most grounded in reality show I could. And because I went to freak schools, like we didn't even have that experience of like, you know, the popular kids, the not popular kids, the stoner kid. Like I went to schools with 20 people in a class, and, you yeah. know, many of them lived on farms. Like it wasn't that kind of <laughs> hierarchy. But, but I think that, um, It just really touched me. It was a kind of writing I had never seen before. Um, There were Mm. scenes – there's a scene where um, Bill comes home and he's kind of a latchkey kid and he's just – I think he makes himself a grilled cheese or something and just watches um, Gary Shanling do stand-up or something. I can't – I'm getting all these facts wrong, I'm sure. But I was like, you're allowed to do a scene – where someone's just watching someone and eating and enjoying themselves. Like it really kind of blew my mind. Like the way all good art really does when it's something new and you just think, wow, I have not seen that before. And, um, and so then we had just started meeting with TV agents at our agency and we, Judd was there and Judd needed writers for Undeclared. So um, we interviewed a couple of, times, I think, and then uh, got the job. And then you kind of never stop working with Judd once you work with him. Like, even in all the years we weren't doing a specific project together, I was always at all of his table reads and every screening and, you know, giving notes and helping out and doing anything I could. And, um, you know, he's really, as you can tell by the work he's made, he's... um, a very effective mentor. So I, you know, sort of would take any opportunity to see him in his element. Um, and then we were just friends for a long time. And then Lena, Sue Nagel, who had been an agent at UTA, where I was a client, United Talent Agency. Um, she then went to run HBO and, um, Lena needed a supervisor and there were, based on her movie Tiny Furniture, and there were a lot of people who wanted to do that and a lot of them were men and big, with big companies and, um, and Sue said, no, I think it should be a woman, I think it should be one person and so Lena, I think, sat down with a few people and then we decided to work together and like two weeks later, I think, something like that, a month later, Lena would know the dates. <laughs> I'm very bad at dates. But then Judd called me and said, I heard you're working with Lena Dunham. Do you want do you want help with that? And I was like, yes, please. So, and there wasn't even a script. There was just – she had what was called a blind script deal, which is like they loved her. They loved her movie. So they gave her a contract to write something for them. They didn't know what it was going to be.
1: And so did she have an idea when you guys started working together or was it something that her you started was, to create together?
0: Well. What I would say is that her idea was sort of that the thing that she said to HBO before I was involved at all is I don't see my friends on television. Um, so and sort of the way Judd and I looked at it was it'll be a lot like tiny furniture, but it will be a little bit funnier and with more girls. And mm-hmm. so and I think also, you know, what's great in the development process is if you have something to show that doesn't surprise people, Mm. you know, because it's such a kind of ridiculous system that I go to you and I say, here's this idea I have, and you're going to picture it one way and I'm going to picture it another way. And then you say, yeah, I really like that. And then I give you the script of it and you're like, well, that isn't how I pictured it, but okay, I like this. And then you're going to shoot it. And then it's even more different from what you pictured it, because why would you, from a 20 minute meeting, know what my plan was and the great thing about having tiny, tiny furniture was there were no surprises it was Lena as the lead
1: mm.
0: it was going to be mostly the same tone um, and it was the same DP, the same writer the same director so it was going to look like that so no one was surprised mm. and so I think we were very fortunate with that and that's why things with girls went very quickly it was not a long development process
1: got it Now, getting there from Undeclared, if you look at the kind of connection between the projects and especially working with Judd on Undeclared and then having him come and work with you and Lena on Girls, what do you think you learned being in the writer's room on Undeclared? What do you think were the things that now in hindsight really stand out to you
0: that you have carried since? Well, first of all, I will say one of the things— Judd does, which I really appreciate, is that it's a meritocracy in there. He doesn't really care about someone's level, mm. how many shows they've been on. You know, Seth Rogen was 18 on that show and wrote, like, four scripts the first season or something. Wow. Maybe more. Um, and and I think that's something you don't see very much. There's, a, And I think it creates a really creative writer's room. And I try to do that, too. Um and and ground things in reality, I remember we turned in a script and there was one storyline and he was like, that sounds like a sitcom, like you're writing it like a sitcom. And we were like, oh, yeah, I guess we are. And so we had to sort of rethink everything because it was our first TV job, really. And um, but I would also say, I mean, in some ways that show spoiled me terribly because we were all the writers were incredibly close. A lot of us were really new and um, because it was a meritocracy, Judd, you could be a staff writer and you would be on the stage for your episode. You would be in casting. You would be in editing. It it was, um, there was no, like, just stay in the room and write. So we learned so much. And that's how, I've always done it because my dream is to train people to do my job so I don't have to do my job anymore. So, you know, there's this idea that, sort of people have to earn their way. And they do, but why not give people a chance? So I would say connectively, that's the thing that I've learned the most from Judd. And also just this freedom of sort of write 50 jokes when you're looking for one and don't spend your whole life on just write them. Something good will come. He used to make us do this thing that I make everyone do now, which is write 50 ideas for the show and we sit there and you're tortured and you write them. And then he would be like, okay, now write 50 ideas for the show when you were just out of ideas. And that's when like the really weird stuff would happen. And I think that's kind of a great way to explain the way Jed works, you Mm -hmm. know, and when you're on set, it's free. And I learned a lot about being on set for him and trying jokes on stage and doing a lot of different things on the day. And not being afraid of a scene is not working, to sit there and rewrite it because something's not going well. Mm. So there's a freedom to that.
1: That feels really inspiring to me. I mean, my God, all of it. But this idea of if it isn't working, just rewrite it.
0: To I mean, it's not ideal. But sure. you, sometimes you get there and a scene is just broken, right? But But
1: to have that freedom mm-hmm. and also – to have the pressure lifted off, really what that says to me underneath is like you're lifting the pressure off of this idea of perfection or that right. you have to achieve. And and when, when you have the freedom, obviously not ideal, but when you have the freedom to throw something at the wall and realize it's not sticking. Yeah. And then just do something else. And it isn't an indictment of your ability. It doesn't right. mean you were bad. It just means the, the truth, which is that creative things have their own life.
0: Absolutely. And
1: if if this little being is, like, weird and shrinking, make a newer, better, shinier, bigger one. Right. And that, I, I would imagine that that just makes you more creative on your feet.
0: I mean, and also, and this is, like, maybe not great about my personality, but I live for those moments. Like, I mm-hmm. love a crisis. I love having to solve things. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm drawn to being a producer, too. Um, so those moments to me are the most exciting. And especially if it's happening on the stage, then you are figuring it out with actors too. And not that you're all sitting in a writer's room figuring it out, but they know when it's not working. And a lot of times they're the ones who tell you. And so then you sort of have to figure out the way to fix it. Um, and I think that is one of the more exciting parts of the work. And again, Mm. it's not ideal. And, you can't do it all the time because that's a nightmare. Right. But when it does happen and it works, you just feel like a genius. Yeah. You know, like there's um, this scene in The Godfather. I hope I get this right. My father told me this story. But there's, you know, Luke Abrodsky sleeps with the fishes. And he is he comes in to meet The Godfather and he's very nervous. And the actor, they shot that scene and the actor was really nervous and couldn't get the words out. And then so what he did was put that guy on a bench – For an earlier scene, practicing saying it. Like, it's such an honor to meet you, Godfather, or whatever his line was. Yeah. So that you knew, so that it informed the next scene why he couldn't couldn't say it. And it's so much better that way. Wow. You know? So, like, that's sort of the dream.
1: That's a, God, that's a good story. I
0: know. There's a better way to tell it,
1: though. No, I disagree. (laughs) I actually really, because it doesn't actually need to be specific. The whole point is that. You can allow a person to be a human, and even when something isn't quote-unquote working, it's not going to the plan according to plan on the page. Yeah. According to the plan on the page, third time's the charm there, (laughs) that you can still build around it. You can allow it to have a life. And instead of criticizing someone and recasting that person and and reshooting the scene a week later— They actually gave that character more life. Absolutely. In this tiny little addition. And how special.
0: I know. And it's so much better for it. Like, there's uh, some—this I'm really going to fuck up. But (laughs) in mathematics, there's, like, the elegant solution, which is—I'm this. Hmm. going to destroy this now. I told you I don't know facts. I mean, I don't know what this is But it's like, say you're building a bridge, and then they realize it's sort of one eight billionth of something off— and then they have to solve it. And then it's an even better solution mm. than the original one was going to be. I, I'm literally going to get hate mail from people who actually know facts. Everyone just needs to relax, honestly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like how they say a broken bone grows back stronger or something like that. Sure. But I do think that, you know, there are those moments in art that are so exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of the moments you live for. And not just the adrenaline part, yeah. but the the are we capable of being creative, fixing this, you know at the moment on the day, really all sort of rallying together when yeah. it works, it really works
1: i I learned so much about that. I got to work on this great show on Netflix called Easy, and Joe Swanberg makes this show, and
0: oh yeah, yeah, he's yeah. so
1: brilliant, and you know he. He architects the whole season and it's an anthology, so every episode's about different characters. And every episode is outlined and there's little chunks of dialogue in the outline. Right. But there's no script. Right. Like
0: curb your enthusiasm. Yeah,
1: it's like a there it's essentially like bowling with bumpers. He's like, right. This is the lane I want you to be in. Yeah. But the lane is yours. Like throw the ball any way you want. Yeah. I need you to make these three points, and the rest of the scene belongs to you. And it's terrifying, but it's also so freeing. And even in this episode that I did, my coworker Jacqueline, who who was on the podcast a while back, who's amazing. Uh, there's this whole thing where she and I are going to go on a date, and as it was planned in the outline, when she finished doing freelance work for me at this company that was mine in the in this in the you know world of the show, then we would we're going to go on a date because it wasn't like. Me too-ish. Like once you're not an employee, I can ask you out and you want to go out with me and now it's all copacetic. But that scene didn't exist. And we were crushing our day and we had the time to add something. And so we just added a scene on the fly. And we added this scene where we talk about it and how much we're going to miss working together. And I'm like, well, now that I'm not, you know, being inappropriate, like I can ask you to dinner, right? And it's this whole thing. and, And it It came from an actual feeling that we as actors were having about missing a moment together. And and so we just did it. And the freedom to just do it, to just make it, to try something. And if it hadn't worked, it wouldn't have been in the show. But it did work, and so it was. Isn't that exciting? And it, it really, I can't explain how, I guess maybe psychologically as an artist, it opened something for me. Because I've been raised, I think, as so many women have, to, like, be a good girl and do things yeah. by the book and, you know, paint by numbers. And and coming from the kind of TV that I grew up doing where I had writers who were so nutso about the words yeah. and who never allowed for any freedom, and I would try to take it where I could get it. And sometimes I would say, like, can we just do an extra take and screw around? But There was a lot of ego and a lot of older male ego and people didn't want that. So even if we did something great, even if it wound up in the director's cut, it would usually go away in the producer's cut and they would go back to the words on the page. And I only learned this because I was like obsessed with going to production meetings and like figuring out extra things where I could. But it, it helped to break me of the habit to do it just as is it is on the page, to prove that I'm really good at this and to do the thing the way a good girl does it and not cause yeah. now. I'm like, we're making fucking art. Yeah. Like we should be finger painting. Like, let's have a good time here. Yeah. yeah. And so I I'm having this sort of as you're talking about this, I realize I'm having this nostalgic feeling. And the feeling is one of freedom I have
0: tasted as an artist. And yeah. it's everything. It, it is. And I think by the way. Both ways work. Like, I'm not trying to improvise in a Tom Stoppard show. You know what I mean? Absolutely like, not. You
1: couldn't improvise with Aaron Sorkin and you that's shouldn't because right. And you words are and, poetry.
0: And that's right. And so it's a different – it's definitely a different dynamic and a different kind yeah. of work. Um, so, right, like, uh, easy was, was a more improvised collaborative method. It was more fluid. But – absolutely. But I think that um, there's just – room for both in different kinds of work.
1: And you have to know how to do both. Yeah. As a working artist, right. you have to and you have to know where. Yeah. But how fun to work with people and learn that. Mm-hmm. To learn where to put it, where it's appropriate, where it has to be by the book and where it can be fluid. You know, and and it sounds like that's what this come up experience was like.
0: Absolutely. For you and that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Work with Judd if you can. He's yeah, I mean, oh my God, I
1: love him. I auditioned for him on a movie, and I won't tell people what it is because I'm not trying to like.
0: No, I understand. You know,
1: <laughs> um, but I did. I I got it. Got down to two actresses for this phenomenal yeah. movie that he did, and he just was like, "You're so funny, and also you look like you're 12. Right. Like I don't believe that you could be this person, right? Because this was very early. Um, in my having started to work. And yes. I was playing a teenager on TV for many years even after this audition. Yeah. But it was so cool where I just was like, it was a fun process to go through yeah, with Yeah, I'm him. sure you were
0: doing a ton of improv. And- oh, my
1: God. And I just loved it. And I would, yes, I'll, I'll put it out there. I would love to work with him at some point. <laughs> yes. now, now that I have a little more freedom for the first time in my career, I'm yeah. like, I'm available for shit. How yeah. fun.
0: It's great. Yeah. It's cool. It's very cool.
1: How... So when you guys get into it, because you said you started to work with Lena, mm-hmm. she said my friends are not represented on TV, which I still feel Yeah. less less so now. I think there's so much more representation, but I still am like, where's a group of friends that looks like my group of friends? Yeah.
0: Well, um, now you have to make that. I know. I'm
1: thinking about it. Yeah. We'll talk about that after that. Okay. <laughs> um, but Judd came into it and said, what, like, can I help you run this show?
0: He came in and just said, I want to work on this. He loved Tiny Furniture like I loved it. He called me at the time the unofficial distributor of Tiny Furniture because it wasn't out yet. But I would just have UTA make me DVDs of it and I would give it to people in different locations.
1: Oh, my God. That's amazing. Uh, Because I just
0: felt like everyone should see it. That was before I was even working on it. Wow. But um, so he came in and, again, there's, like, just this sort of language of Judd, which is, like, all right, let's do this, you know, kind of. And he, (laughs) so she started working on a script and she had her characters. And, um, you know, it was very late in the process where Judd said, you need the moment where her parents cut her off. Uh, You know, that wasn't in the original script, things like that. That's Mm. like his brain. And, um, you know, he looked at every script and gave notes and was in editing a lot, but he was the California producer and I was the New York one. And I mean, I just, I've always loved working with him. We have a very good relationship, creative, I mean, we're friends too, but we have a very good yeah. creative relationship. And um, so it was sort of a magical time that time.
1: That's so cool. Yeah. And what, what goes into running a show? You know, again, for people who are listening who are inspired by what we all do, but who've not been in the room. Like, yeah. What do you do as a showrunner? What does your day look like?
0: I mean, it all depends on the show, of course. But yeah. um, you sort of answer every question in the world <laughs> from anyone who wants an answer. I, everyone is coming to you. It's um, And this is not a complaint. This is why I think it's – such a great job, but people want to know when the script is coming. They want the script that you worked on. They want to know what socks the character should wear. They want to know if it's okay if the electrician can have two weeks off. They want to, it's everything. And the way I like to work is I hire people that are really, really good at their jobs and let them do them. So luckily when I worked with our producers, um, Gina Heyman and Eileen Landris, who came to us from eight years on the Sopranos. So like she kind of knew what she was doing, um, and very overqualified, but so they managed so much of the production part. And of course we had a big say in all of that, um, and the creative choices, but we were very lucky to have people who did a lot of those things. But you run the writer's room, so you have all the writers, and you create what the season's going to be, and then go smaller and smaller, so that then it's what this episode is going to be, then it's what Marnie's story is going to be in this episode. Um, and then you you know, start to pick guest cast, and you start to pick locations, and you pick directors, and... I mean, you just make all the choices that go into a television show. Does that sound right to you? I'm trying to think of, like, if there's a better way to explain what you do. You're, like, kind of a mom, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're writing and scripts. And you're writing scripts, yeah.
1: So how much of the day are you writing versus doing all the logistical things that, that are a showrunner's
0: responsibility? I mean, we tried to get a lot of the writing done before we started shooting. Mm. That didn't really work out every year, but it, we would have a few scripts going in. And, um, Lena's like maybe the fastest writer in the world and obviously fantastic at it. So that made things easier in rewrites. Mm-hmm. And so we would take all the writers with the, we had the writers room in LA, we'd take them all to New York and then go back and forth sort of between the room and the set and, and Um, you know, we had really talented writers so we would let them do their jobs too.
1: Mm. That's really cool that you were able to delegate in that way.
0: I mean, I'm honestly just, like, I don't understand people who are super controlling in those situations. It is not for me. I'm way too lazy. I don't want to do other people's jobs. I (laughs) want everyone to do my job and I want to be on a beach. So I think um, that's just the kind of Way I work, mm. um, and I do think there um, there's something sort of inherently female in that, um, because it's not a huge ego. And I'm not saying men don't do it. Judd is very much a guy who does that. But for me, having been on other sets of other people, I there are men. I I find that men have a harder time relinquishing control mm. in my anecdotal research. Mm-hmm. I also think the way that our producers crewed up our show, and they hate this when I say it because they think it's a simplification or an oversimplification, but Eileen and Gina didn't just, like, hire the best people ever. They hired the best people who then would get along with the other people. They tried to create mm. a harmonious set while still getting the best people, and I that, to me, felt inherently female. And they were always like, Eileen's like, that isn't what it is. It's just being good at your job. But I think there's something female in caring whether people get along and knowing that that can be a secret to great work.
1: Well, and in seeing that yeah, rather than – because women have been taught to be so sensitive to relationships yes. and other people's feelings. When you can see how other people's feelings layer, maybe it's just more inherent to knowing – and thus being so good at your job, knowing that those people will mesh because you can see the overlap and whether it, you know, basket weaves or is like a head-on collision. That's right. You go for the basket weave.
0: And I think a lot of people often will just go for the head-on collision or not care thinking, well, everyone will work it out. And they do. I mean, the thing that's like, I think a really big crime is that You can be on the loveliest set in the world and everyone is so great and the work doesn't turn out to be great and vice versa. Like, I wish that when you watched The Greatest Show on Earth, you knew that part of that reason that happened is because everyone just loved each other and collaborated and was so wonderful. And obviously, like, that isn't the case. But I wish there I mean, I just think, why not have it be fun, (laughs) you know, if you can, Mm -hmm. if you have any control over that.
1: I love that. How how far into the show were you when you decided you wanted to direct?
0: So far. So the first year I was like maybe I should direct one, and I was like let's just get the show happening. And thank God he said that because it would have been so distracting. And then I didn't do it till season 5 because I felt like I couldn't be gone for that long. Because it really takes you out of the world of showrunner when you're directing, you know, you have so much prep to do.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, all of the steps and the scouting and the casting. And
1: and that's something people don't realize is it's not like a director shows up on a Monday when right. the episode starts. Yeah. You've done weeks of prep. You've had to cast every role that's in that episode. Yes. You've had to approve every piece of wardrobe. You've had to go in for fittings. You go in for meetings with every department head. You go on days of location scouts. It's not like the coffee shops and the sidewalks that the, these shows are shooting on just appear. Right. Each one has to be selected. Every car that's in the background is picked. Every There's so much work that goes into it. And so it it's almost the invisible labor of the product Yes, that, you know, most viewers don't know about. So I think it's good to
0: yeah, talk I think, about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, it was funny because I think when I wanted to do it first season, it was because I knew so little. Mm-hmm. I sort of wasn't, I didn't know to be afraid of it. And then mm-hmm. I sort of spent four years not only being afraid of it, but also realizing that in the job of showrunner, I always thought, well, I get to do all the good stuff a director does, but I don't have to go on as many tech scouts, right. you know? And and so I always thought, well, I, I get to go in. I get to make up the words. I get to tell someone a different way to do something. I felt like I was directing, um so I thought, well, why bother? And then fifth season, actually Colin Quinn was on our show and he said to me, Well, you gotta direct. And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, Oh yeah, you're never gonna find a nicer space than this to direct. You gotta do it. And so I did, and <laughs> I actually wound up loving it and and did like the part of the storytelling that was visual that felt yeah. different to me. And and I did learn a lot and it was interesting because I had spent so much time in editing to sort of then go back to directing and think about it in that way. And, um, and you know, I did, I think a much better job than I ever would have done the first year because I was so worried that I was going to let down the crew. You know, we had such a good relationship. We were like family. There was so much mutual respect. And I was like, if I fuck this up in front of these people, I'm going to, Fucking kill myself. Yeah. Um. So I also worked. I think way harder than I would have the first year when you kind of just think like, oh, I'll try directing. Because I also had seen a ton of men do that.
1: Yeah.
0: Like just be in other roles on shows and be very be the forty percent sure they can do it.
1: And then you have to clean up their mess in the edit. Yes.
0: And I, by the way, or they're great, but I waited till I was like hundred and two percent sure I could do it. Hmm. So there, Hmm. you know, we have to find the balance.
1: Why do you think that show, and maybe it's easier to answer in hindsight, why do you think it resonated
0: with people so much? I mean, if I knew that, I would be on the next show that's like lightning in a bottle. I really don't know. I mean, I know sort of the stories that people tell about seeing something they hadn't seen before. Um, And I mean, we had one woman who came in who said to us, you gave me the courage to have sex while being on top, you know? So there was a lot of the body stuff, which is great. And, um, you know, she just had just this rare voice that no one had heard before. And I think Judd and I always thought our job was to protect it. And we really did. And HBO was incredible to us about letting us do that. Mm. And people say about HBO, like, they leave you alone. That's why the shows are good. And they didn't leave us alone. They just gave us great notes. And we're really fantastic collaborators. We were really lucky. Um, But I wish I could tell you why it struck such a nerve. I don't know. Um, You know, and it's really intimidating having done that show that did strike such a nerve, good and bad, but at least people were talking about it, you know? And and I think it's hard to know. Um, it's scary to do the next thing. Yeah. So.
1: What do you think the bad, where do you think the bad came from? And how did it feel to be on the receiving end of that stuff?
0: I mean, Lena took so much of it, obviously. Um, and I mean, a lot of it was correct, right? So we mm-hmm. learned a lot. I mean, Lena was telling her own story, And there wasn't enough diversity in the story. And it came from the writer's room. There wasn't enough diversity in the writer's room. Mm. And we corrected that problem. And that was a great lesson to learn. And I think at that point, I was so sure that women weren't being represented properly. And that we were bringing women to the forefront that we didn't think of the other people we were leaving behind. Because I was always, you know either me or my partner or me alone, I was always the only female writer in a room.
1: Right. So
0: it's it was something that, um, you know, people let us know and I heard. And, uh, you know, if people are willing to let you grow, that is really, really lucky because, mm. you know, some people just get canceled and it's done. Yeah. Um, but – and I think um, – You know, some of the stuff was like, well, you know, all the likability stuff is always a little boring to me. Um, I always preferred saying relatable. And I'm like, there are characters I'm interested in and wish I could figure out a way to talk about who are deeply, genuinely unlikable. Like Donna Rotuno or whatever, Harvey's lawyer. (sighs) Like, that woman is unlikable so how do you tell her story and by the way I don't think you can but but I that's a character that is unlikable and really interesting to me that Mm -hmm. I just can't I love a character that I'm like how what how how did you wind up how did you do this and um and you know she was on the daily with Megan Tui and Mm -hmm. which she didn't have to go on and she was kind of very game about it and said some of the worst things I've ever heard. Ever. I was. It is crazy. I actually needed to, this is going to
1: sound weird. I needed to like do a bunch of squats. Yes. No, of course. And like yell after I listened to that because there was so much rage in my body that a woman could speak about other women that way. I know. That I needed to move and, and, and make noise yeah. to get the rage out of the center of my being.
0: We should end on like a better note. I know.
1: I was like, I've, we've just gone on such a tangent and really where I was planning on going was then to ask you how you chose to know when to end the show so we can we can we can steer the ship back. <laughs> it does make me think when there are so many stories and people do feel overwhelmed by content and you have, as you said, lightning in a bottle, you actually have people's attention. Yeah. With a show like that, how do you decide to quit while you're ahead? How do you decide when it's time
0: for that to be over? How do you give it up? Well, we never made work intentionally to be political, so mm. I think um, it was inherently political. But we were never trying to like message anyone right. or do. I well, mean, when you center women, it is political. What exactly? Mm. That's right. So, so I think I think it was long enough. I just we were we tried to end it at five I think and then HBO was like how about six but I think um you know it was unsustainable and also they were turning from girls into women and it is a lot harder to understand that behavior when you're older Mm -hmm. you know I think um people behave stupidly all the time in their early 20s and a lot of people can relate to that and uh the idea that they were then going to be in, like, their mid to late 30s being that entitled and ridiculous didn't seem appealing. It seemed like you just call it, You're you like, know. you got to grow up. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And it was just great to know where we were ending so mm-hmm. we could just go for it.
1: And then how, how did you decide to jump into camping so quickly after?
0: I think, honestly, we – We found the content, we found the IP of the original limited and just thought, oh, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. I think it was really hard for us to to imagine taking time and not striking while the iron was hot. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would have definitely spent more time developing it and and finding it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it was just all too quick and, you know, like, working with Jen Garner is the pleasure of the universe. The other shoe never drops. You cannot imagine what a gift her. she is. It's, I mean, seriously, like, whatever you think, she's, like, 20 times better than that. So I would never take back any of it. I met, I got to work with people I loved all over the place in every department. Um, But I do think, um, you know, that it was... It was not our best work and it was very fast. And, you know, you have a misfire. And I think I Mm. wish I had just slowed it down a little bit.
1: Mm. And during all of this, you're also working on the Lenny Letter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're also doing Lenny. But we had, I mean, in all honesty, we had the greatest team in the world running it. And so we had a lot of freedom to do our own work when we were working on Girls. People really... Mm we're great at that. Talk about like hiring people you think are really good at their jobs and letting them do it. That's a very good example.
1: What were you looking for when you were hiring people? Cause essentially you were, you were running a, like a media company.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the first person we hired was Ben Cooley, who's my baby daddy. And he, not to be confused with my husband. And he, he was the one, we just thought we were kind of going to do it. Like we would pay for it. It would just be us. Collecting our friends' narratives and putting them out into the world. And we needed someone to, like, put it in a format or thing like that. Right. And then – You'd spotlight the voices and you needed somebody to do the tech. Yeah. And not just the tech, but also – I mean, yes. Honestly, at that point, it was sort of the tech, but also the sort of imagination of what it could be. Mm. And then we hired Jess Gross, who um, – was our editor-in-chief, who's a brilliant genius. She's now doing parenting for the New York Times, which I think is really great, even though it's mostly for people with younger kids. So far, I still think it's like the only place telling the truth about parenting in some ways. Wow, that's such high praise. Yeah, and so, and then she hired her staff and like Arcia, all these amazing women, Caitlin Green, and we get to meet and work with, um, I mean, I could list 100 million people, but yeah. uh, but he was the one who was like, I, I'm going to Condé Nast and Hearst to get ad partners. Like, it had never even occurred to us that it would be that. Wow. So it it sort of grew beyond our wildest dreams for a while. And then, you know, you do hit kind of a top of newsletters. And also, when we started, there weren't a lot of newsletters. And now there are one million newsletters, and there's only so many ad dollars and Things like that. But I'm still really, really proud of that and so happy for the little relationships we've made. And, I mean, even I forget, like, I'm working with um, Io Tillett-Wright, who I know you're talking to next week. He's, like, yeah. the best. And when I first heard his name, I was like, that's so familiar. And then I was like, oh, Lenny Letter. Like, <laughs> of course. Um, so, yeah, I feel really proud of what we did. That's so
1: cool. Yeah. That's so, so cool. And— so we come to sort of now yes. all of this content and creation and, and stuff that you've made, and you signed an overall with Fox,
0: with Fox Twenty One. Yeah. So
1: what sort of things are you working on? Is is there something that you haven't done yet that you're looking to do?
0: Well, I, you know, I was with HBO for eight years, I think total, and and they are like my family. I love them so much. And while I was there, like I woke up. And was like, what? Like, the bookseller makes content. Like nothing. You know, when I went under, I feel like Encino man. I'm like, what happened? Why are there 400 streaming? Play-? You know, it's like really trying to like catch team. up. Crazy. And so, so now that I've emerged, I'm. I want to make more work, and I, you know, kind of decided this mutually, like with Casey, um, that that. I would start talking to people about going places where I could have more platforms to work on. And he was all in favor of it and very generous with me about it. And and when I met with Dana and Bert, I just really, really liked them and found them to be um, really on the side of the creator and had really smart thoughts and good notes and um, somehow lacking a cynicism even though like it's a world gone mad mm. so in the Wild West and they don't have that. they still sort of believe in it. and so yeah, I mean that's I mean it, the deal closed in November and then the whole town closed down. and so now we're just up and developing things and acquiring some IP and just getting moving. but it's been really exciting so far and I don't like change and so it's obviously a huge change for me, but I've been enjoying it. So awesome. And I have great women who work for me and support me. And um, I just want to do work that excites me. It's so boring and such a cliche to say. But, you know, people almost never send me anything with male leads. And I'm like, I also like male leads, you know. it's right. it's um, So it's interesting to see a lot of people send me work that is like girls but blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that I don't really want to do again because – I did it and I don't have that many ideas. <laughs> so we I'm just waiting to see, but we're doing some feature stuff too and it's mm-hmm. um it's all really exciting and I feel really lucky to be where I am and I will definitely, you know, be patient in the work too.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Do you from your vantage point now, do you have advice for people who want to go into development or who want to be writers? You know, are, are there resources you like to point people to who are starting
0: out? Well, the main thing I think that um, is important for writing that I think it's hard for people is um, to be less precious with your work. I think mm. sometimes people write a script, they don't rewrite it enough, or they do, and they have it in a place they like, and then they just keep sending it out year after year to get hired. And I think... You just, the minute you finish something, write something else. Just next, next, next. It almost never happens that those scripts really get produced and change the world. Like Mad Men was one of those scripts. You know, he held on to it. HBO passed on it. He got it somewhere else. He got it made. Um, But that's really, really unusual. And I think that, um, you know, just keep writing and keep writing and draft and draft and draft and don't, don't be too precious with your work because the whole thing of television writing is writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And also I don't want to see the same spec scripts from people. You know, I don't want someone to have the same play three years in a row. Like I'll read that, but I also want to know that you can write something and write it quickly. Yeah.
1: That's really good advice. So as you know, the show's called work in progress. Yes. I love to ask everyone who sits across from me, what, comes to mind when you hear the phrase, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now?
0: I mean, everything. I think that's like the glory of that title is that aren't we all every day works in progress? So the day we think we're done is just probably the day we like dissolve and die or shrivel up because Mm -hmm. everyone I know and love and respect thinks of themselves as a work in progress. And that's sort of the exciting part about life, I guess.
1: I don't know. Here, here.
0: (laughs) have like 25 people that answer that that way.
1: (laughs) No, everyone has a different answer, but a lot of people do in their own way talk about how they do feel like it's everything. Yeah. And I like that because I do, so it makes me feel less alone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Less crazy. Yeah. You know, overwhelmed or whatever adjective you plug in there. Um Thank you. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.